Um, you all have a handout, I believe. That's uh, that's important. And uh, if you want to follow along with uh, today's um, text, we're going to look at. So it's on page. I just looked it up. Page in the in the Bible, page eight eight seven, New Testament, John, John's Gospel, chapter two. Maybe we could uh, just start with a word of prayer, Lord. We um, we approach your word. Uh, we trust in a spirit of uh, teach. We make us teachable and humble. Is it is a great thing your word and it has much to teach us. Help us, Lord, to again approach it as we should. Uh, Lord, teach us today, for you are our teacher and our Lord. Amen. Alexander says it has been a while since uh, Learners Exchange gathered, hasn't it? So um, what better way to regather um, than by hearing Holy Scripture? So let's just look at a passage here. John's Gospel, as I say, chapter 2, 1 to 11. Well-known stuff, well-known stuff. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone, serves the good wine first and when people have drunk freely then the poor wine but you have kept the good wine until now this the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him well known one well known story not a thing in that story is new to you I'm sure it's um, isn't that beautiful? Just one, it's a beautiful, seems to be just beautiful story. It's the first thing that always strikes me. I hear it again and again. I've been thinking about this the last 10 days. It's just beautiful. Jesus going to a wedding feast and meeting a need there. So let's just look at this. I'm well aware that I'm speaking to uh, people who know these things so well, so I'm this is meat and potatoes, gospel, uh, looking, just looking at scripture is such a blessing. On the third day, it starts here, on the third day at 2-1, um, on the third day. Um, some are quite convinced of this, it's on the third day since the calling of Nathaniel and uh, Philip. That's... Um, I I've been reading recently the um, 
the uh, Jerusalem Bible, a Catholic uh, translation, very beautiful in most places. I just find it very beautiful. Nice change to your scripture. Their, their footnote says, this is the third day since the calling of Nathaniel. At least it's strongly implied there. But more about that later, just a bit more about that later. And then on, on the third day, a wedding at Cana in Galilee, John says. John's Gospel is uh, a quote here from Richard Bauckham, who spent many, many long years studying the Gospel of John, the Cambridge scholar, wonderful fellow. Took a course with him once, just a wonderful man of God and a learned fellow. John's Gospel is, he says, quote, the most precise in terms of topography. There you go. Wonder why. Uh, what's where on a landscape? The most precise in terms of topography, again, says the learned uh, Mr. Bauckham. That is to say, um, the, the synoptics, as Mr. Bauckham goes on to point out, in the synoptics, you're more inclined to find something like, well, in a village, or, or some generalizing statement like that. But a named place... A named place is more, much more frequent in John's Gospel. I think Malcolm says, I recall from memory, a couple of exceptions, that's all. John likes to name places. And, you'll, and you realize, and you remember it, that the story ends, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. He repeats place. You wonder, why does he repeat it? You've already told us that, John. But John says, okay, I'm telling you again, this took place at Cain in Galilee. There you go. You could say, to these kind of little facts, you might say, uh, uh, so what? Um, why is this third day mentioned, presumably for the careful reader, after the calling of Nathaniel and perhaps Philip? And why, again, why, why, John, do you tell us this place? Apparently an ordinary sort of place. Cana in Galilee. Place, uh, place um, is interestingly noted early in John. Just, uh, it is Nathaniel who's told about Jesus, and he's, he's from Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? A place that wasn't very noted for greatness, apparently. I was going to say something about some Canadian spot, but that's not for me to do. No. Our faith, but our faith, I think we can say, upon reflection, we know why these kind of details might be mentioned. Here's a bit of an extended quote. You'll, you'll forgive me for, uh, for a, a bit of a lengthy quote. This is from a Catholic uh, philosopher named uh, Romano Guardini, who... Born about, born about 20 years before C.S. Lewis, you know, 1880 or something, died around 1950. I'm guessing at his dates. But a learned Roman Catholic philosopher taught in Munich for a long time. He was an Italian fellow. The unique quality of what happened, he writes, the unique quality of what happened in the Old Testament is this. This is, again, straightforward stuff, but it's good to hear him say this. Not only, he writes, did God create all things. Remember, he's summarizing the entire Old Testament here. Old thing to do, but I like this kind of 
generalizing statements about scripture, they can be so helpful. Again, he writes, not only did God create all things, the faith of Israel certainly says that, not only does God preserve and govern all things, but, and here he comes to the point, he declares this God of Israel that he is on his way, coming to mankind. The faith of Israel always says that. Israel knows God and she knows that he's on his way. He's coming. He's going to do something great. He didn't just call Israel so that Israel would get to know him. Although that's very important. But God, I'm on my way. I'm coming to my creation. I'm coming. He is the God who is approaching, says Mr. Guardini. And now I'm editing his comments. Think of it. This God of Israel, he arrived in Jesus, says Mr. Gordon. This is the amazing fact of our faith. He arrived in the mystery of Jesus, plainly for all men to see. And then our author says, with this I'll stop quoting Mr. Guardini, this, he says, is a step which was faithful to the destiny of God himself. Think of that, since he had now made the destiny of man his own. That's why God came to Israel, to call back humanity to himself. That's what Israel was for, to prepare the place where this God was going to show up. That's a quote from uh, The Humanity of Christ, again by Romano Guardini, a learned Roman Catholic. Or in scriptural language, with what Mr. Guardini is saying here, the word became flesh. This is what John this is what John says before he gets us to Cana in Galilee, famously. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we hear this too often. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Flesh. Real us. God with us. The synoptics are more likely to say, God with, with us. Therefore, this is the point here, therefore, God in the flesh, speaking with a man named Nathaniel. Amazing. God, incarnate, who's become flesh, spoke with a man named Nathaniel. And he goes to places, a place like Cana, in Galilee. God incarnate. The word became flesh and went to a wedding feast in Cana in Galilee, John is saying. John would never have us forget the prologue as we read through his whole gospel. This is God incarnate calling Nathaniel. This is God incarnate going to a wedding feast in Cana. Where, to continue on with the story, the wedding feast was apparently out of or was running short of wine. There you go. God incarnate, the word made flesh, is at a wedding feast in Canaan, Galilee, where they're running again, they're running out of wine. What a gospel is John's gospel? It's, it's meant to make you go, oh, really, John? God 
the Word made flesh, and now he's in Canaan, Galilee, where he's told they're running short of wine. The story continues, and you'll recall that through verse 5, we keep looking at it as we look at this, Mary is highlighted. I like this about John here. Mary gets some real attention here, doesn't he? Yes. Did I say he? Mary, sorry. Mary is highlighted. See, I'm a Protestant. See, I try to shift away from this. Mary, that's, that's, that's the mother. That's the mother of Jesus. She's highlighted. He was in the beginning with God. Again, the prologue tells us. An Advent and a Christmas and an Epiphany theme were still in it. All in one. He was in the beginning with God. Yes, says John here. And he had a mother. You know, John just puts that out there. God, through whom all things were created, the word that created everything, this word has a mother. Uh, the Christian church did not uh, invent this stuff. It's sort of, it's in there in the original witness. Um, our faith does not shy away from this kind of complexity. So the creed gets around to saying, very God and very man. He had a mother. The word that became flesh. He has a mother. Amazing stuff. Mary's the, as the Catholics like to say, rightly or wrongly, Mary's the mother of God. Otherwise, Jesus is maybe not really a human being. Yes, there he is. Very God and very God. Jesus also, we're told next, Jesus also with his disciples was invited to the wedding. Um, just a footnote here. I always like, uh, it's good to be reminded, um, we're all mostly, we're Anglicans here. Marriage, uh, which holiest estate, the prayer book says in the marriage service, Christ adorned and beautified with his presence in Cana of Galilee. The prayer book uh, folks thought this is such a big deal, we should mention it at every wedding. So the prayer book says, uh, Christ adorned and beautified marriage by being at Cana in Galilee. So the Anglican tradition, the prayer book always re, uh, is uh, reminding us when people get married that Jesus was at a marriage feast. That's just a, just a reminder. When the wine ran out, again, um, uh, we haven't forgotten about Mary. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Uh, and so John, as Mary lets Jesus know that uh, there are things, we've got a problem here, Jesus, my boy. No wine. Mm. He was aware, says, I'll quote Mr. Guardini again, he was aware, speaking of Jesus, he was aware of the infinite demands of the moment. Yeah, that's a lovely quote. People were around Jesus all the time and they had needs, didn't they? I'm sick, I know someone who's sick. He met people who were demon-possessed. Uh, people giving uh, the Pharisees were always challenging him he, there were demands made on him all the time uh, the crowds made demands on Jesus he was aware of the infinite demands of the moment but here 
famously, if you follow along in this story, there is, isn't there, a moment of pause. Uh, this is... This has um, raised a lot of a lot of comment, hasn't it? Jesus says to his mother, she says to him, "Remember, I have no wine." And she says to him, he says to her famously, "What is this to me? My hour has not yet come." Uh, have you figured that one out? I'm sure in Bible studies or reading it by yourselves, that's uh, it isn't straightforward to me. Jesus. Um, puts a little distance between himself and his mother here in some sense. Um, okay, you're telling me they need wine? What's that got to do with me? Even the tone of voice is maybe implies a decision about what was going on. My hour has not yet come. Sort of to get at this, um, um, again, with a bit of help from Mr. Guardini, if the Gospels have one central theme, it is, of course, the kingdom of God, or as Matthew likes to put it, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's the great message of the Gospels. Uh, if you had to summarize, what's one great, the great theme of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? It's pretty much Jesus saying, he comes into Galilee and announces the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is at hand. This is glossed by Mr. Guardini simply by saying, he says, a work of God has, a work of God had come to its maturity. When Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, I think that's right. Mr. He's saying to Israel, a great point of fulfillment, of maturity, has now arrived. Maturity, I think, is a good word. Israel's been prepared for this moment. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God has come to a point of great maturity now. It's going to break into the world. Yes, the kingdom is about, again, to break in. It's about to be revealed. That's why Jesus got so much attention. The kingdom, the rule of Israel's God is about to break in. Yes, the Israel, the God of Israel always said, I'm coming, I'm coming. So I said the other day, the best statement of this by a modern Christian writer, if properly understood, is uh, I won't even mention his name. Who was it who said, Aslan is on the move? Yes. The God of Israel is now on the move. Watch out, Israel, a great moment of maturity has come. The kingdom is at hand. Or if the infinite problem of the world, in a sense, is about to be addressed. But this maturity, this at-hand moment, is, of course, under heaven's providence, isn't it? So that's why, is that why Jesus has to say to his mother, my our mother has not yet arrived. Not quite yet. The kingdom's at hand, but it's still going to be God's work. There's no other... You can't force the kingdom, Mother. My, my, the kingdom's coming, but not quite at this moment. You can't force it. And yet, of course, as the story tells us, this demand for wine, as we, as we know as we read the story famously... 
the demand for wine is met. Um, Mary says they're running out of wine or they're out of wine. Jesus says, well, not yet. But then he meets the problem. But blessed Mary, I mean, all generations shall call me blessed Mary, says, um, she believes, doesn't she, in this story. She receives this moment of, well, now wait, Mary, not quite yet. My hour has not yet come. And then she turns to the servants. This story is so a bit interesting. Do whatever he tells you, she says to the servants. You got that one figured out too. Uh, Jesus says to the servants, now do whatever he tells you. Mary somehow simply believes in her boy Jesus uh, in this story. Do whatever he tells you. Um, Mary believes in her boy. She, she hears his distancing remark, but she's not... Uh, put off by that too much. Just want to stay inside this story. It speaks for itself, doesn't it? When Mary says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Mary believes. Now, if you're following along here, I don't know the uh, the verse. Uh, it's at verse uh, 6, isn't it? Now, there were six stone jars, jars there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Six containers large holding 20 or 30 gallons. This water is obviously available for what's about to happen. Mr. Bauckham insists here, and to stop, and, and I think he's in conversation with certain interpreters of John, he is quite convinced that these stone jars have no symbolic reference. They're there because you need some water to get turned into wine. There's no symbolic reference. If we were Christians in the Middle Ages, we'd go to town and find all sorts of symbolic meaning there, wouldn't we? And who knows, maybe the medievals knew more than the moderns, but uh, Mr. Bauckham thinks no, there's... Uh, there's no symbolic meaning here. Uh, John, Mr. Bauckham goes on to talk about this kind of thing. John will do this. It's a, again, it's an obvious kind of detail. You'll recall from John 19, when the Lord was on the cross, there was a jar full of sour wine there at the foot of the cross. So they put a sponge full of this sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his breath. To his, uh, to his mouth. There's no symbolic value either to the jar of sour wine, but John likes to do this detail thing. It was there, and so they used it to, um, in some way, perhaps ease the pain of Jesus on the cross, this sour wine. Um, so the story continues. Now we're about to witness what John will call the manifestation of his glory at the end of this little story. Again, do whatever he tells you, Mary says to the servants. And, as we know how the story unfolds, Jesus instructs the servants, and the servants, therefore, are privy 
they are in the know about this miracle or about this this mighty act of God. That's an interesting little detail, I think. The Lord of glory, John wants us to know, the word who is God, he involves the servants in manifesting his glory. Sit back in this kind of story. Do you wonder why, why did the Lord do it that way? Why didn't he just do it himself? Why does he put the servants to work here in this story? He does it. The Lord of glory, he involves these servants in uh, manifesting his glory. But then you sit, sit back and you realize that this is a kind of Johannine theme, a theme that runs through John's gospel. The manifestation of glory all through John's gospel is, isn't it? It's through lowliness. It's through service. The manifestation of the glory of God in the, in the mystery of Jesus comes finally through the deepest humiliation of the Son of God. God's glory in John's Gospel is always manifest through humiliation. That's an interesting... If I be lifted up, Jesus says, I will draw all to me. That's the way John likes to talk. This, the manner of his death, is the way to his supreme glory. You know this stuff from John's Gospel. John likes to speak sort of two things at once, reminding us that Jesus said, if I be lifted up, lifted up. Yes, that's glory. Lifted up on a cross is how God reveals the glory of his son Jesus. This is the manner of his death, and it's the way to his su supreme uh, glory. Mm. Maybe we can gloss it all like this somehow. At Cana in Galilee, he made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant, as it says in Philippians 2. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. It's a parallel here between Philippians 2 and, and this story in John. If we look at it carefully, I'm sure. The lowly one will be lifted up. That's... Um, that's interesting. Jesus involves the servants in his servant work. Does think John means, means us to note this? I think he does. The lowliness of Jesus, that he'll, he'll involve these servants, these lowly ones, if you will, at the wedding feast. He'll involve them in his work. In a tradition of uh, gospel study, just moving on and looking at this, I just want to just stay inside the story and let it speak to us itself. There's a tradition of gospel study called fancy language and this kind of stuff always called form critical. Um, this kind of story is called in this kind of form critical analysis, this kind of story, the story of Jesus at Cana in Galilee, is called a pronouncement story. Uh, the form of the story leads to a significant saying of Jesus. That's why uh, these stories are told by the gospel writers. They want to get to a, a central pronouncement. Uh, for instance, in Mark's gospel, chapter 3, Mark relates that Mary and the brothers of Jesus were looking for him. Why does he tell this story? 
Well, it is the occasion, famously, you'll recall, for Jesus to say, whoever does the will of God, he's my brother and my sister and my mother. The Gospel writer remembers this story so that he can highlight this pronouncement by Jesus. My family's looking for me? Well, if you do the will of God, you're my family. That's a pronouncement story. That's why the story is told. That's what Jesus, the Gospel writer wants us to remember that Jesus said something like that. If we today in this room desire to do the will of God, well, Jesus regards us as his family. At Cana, at Cana in John, you notice this. This is uh, interesting stuff, it seems to me. The pronouncement is put into the mouth of the steward of the feast. The central thrust of this story, if it has one central th- uh, thrust, it's this pronouncement by this steward at the feast. He says, you look at it uh, as you're following along, Everyone, he says, serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then uh, the poor wine. But you, he says to the bridegroom, people putting on the party, you have kept the good wine until now. You sense when you read this, this is why, this is what John wants us to hear centrally in this story, I believe. The steward says, everyone serves good wine first. When people have drunk freely, then they bring out the cheap stuff. But you have kept the good wine until now. You've done a little reversal on us here. Thank you very much. Thanks for the good wine that shows up now. You'll notice in the handout, if you look at the handout, um, That Mr. Bauckham likes to, he, he lists the seven, uh, this is a, this handout's from a page of Mr. Bauckham's book, The Gospel of Glory, all about John's Gospel. That, he, that the first sign has no explicit, explicit indication of its significance. That's interesting. Or it's, it seems interesting uh, to some readers of John's Gospel in this kind of moment in it. Where is the explicit indication of the significance of this story? It does show up in other sign stories. Here, the significance of the story, again, is given to the steward. He seems to say what the central thrust of this story is all about. At a big feast, the good wine comes first then a lesser wine. But you have kept the good wine uh, for the end of the feast. Mm. Jesus provides, John is telling us, we kind of know this because we've heard it so often, Jesus provides a better wine for the people of Israel. That's the central meaning in one reading. I think it's correct. The central meaning of this uh, this little story of Jesus going to Cana and, and attending a wedding feast is that Jesus again provides a better wine. The story, I'll quote again from Mr. Bauckham, the story 
takes for granted what Jews believed about the Messianic age. This story takes it for granted. The first best readers of this, they know what's being said here. The story takes for granted what Jews believe about the Messianic age. Its blessings will surpass all the blessings of Israel's history. The kingdom is at hand. The kingdom has reached its maturity. Now, God is going to serve the best wine that he has to serve to his people. This is, this is undoubtedly, it seems to me, the message of the story of the wedding feast that Cana in Galilee. The message is that with Jesus, the expected messianic age is dawning. There it is, the heart of this story. The pronouncements put into the mouth of the steward of the feast. Now the best wine has arrived. Now the expected messianic age is dawning. This little this point can be extremely significant, and it's been usually indirectly um, missed or contested in Christian exegetical history. On this reading, the story of the Cana, the, the, the wine miracle at Cana in, in, Gal- in, uh, in Galilee, is this is a fulfillment story. This story shows that Israel's story is about to be fulfilled. That is to say, it's not a replacement story. Jesus is not setting aside Israel. He's fulfilling the mystery of Israel's story. Fulfilling it, not setting it aside. On this mountain, for instance, you read in Isaiah 25. On this mountain, says again Isaiah, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich foods, a feast of well-aged The Messianic age would have is pictured with this rich fulfillment, uh, a wine being provided by the Creator for His people that is unbelievable, if you will. And it's interesting that this passage, and this is so rare in Israel's scripture, this passage from Isaiah ends with this, again, a very rare thing in the faith of Israel. It says, he, this is our, the God of Israel, he will swallow up death forever. That's a rare moment for Israel to know that her God, the God of Israel, is going to end death someday. It's not a big motif in the Old Testament, as you know. But in the Messianic age, it's rarely said, but rich wine will be provided. And in fact, death will be abolished. Just think of it. There's a better wine for sure. Talk about a wine that you want to get a hold of. It'll give you eternal life. I took part, of, took part in it today at the 730 Eucharist. 
the wine of the fulfillment of Israel's story, I drank this morning at St. John's, Vancouver. The better wine is now amongst us. The gospel of Jesus Christ is here. Um, and that leads to an interesting fact that maybe uh, I had not, I was sharing this with some people the other day, I hadn't seen this fact. If I'd read it in Bauckham before, I'd completely forgotten it. The Cana story, and this is, um, this maybe is highlighted a bit by your handout. The Cana story is before the Lord's public ministry. He hasn't gone public yet. He's spoken to Philip and Nathaniel, and who's apparently come away from John the Baptist circles. He goes off to a wedding at Canaan in Galilee. The, 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 the turning of the water into wine was just witnessed by a few people. John goes out of his way to say that. Eh, the servants couldn't, couldn't miss it. No one else seemed to, seemed to get it, but his disciples saw it, a few of them. The handful who showed up. It was an essentially private event. The seventh sign you'll see on your handout, of course, is which is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The seventh sign is also after the public ministry. The first sign, says Mr. Bauckham, is before his public ministry. The seventh sign happens, if you will, after. The Lord famously only appears to his disciples when he rose from the dead. That's, that's interesting. I remember my old pastor, um, Desmond Hunt, used to say that if he was a gospel writer, he wouldn't have been able to resist telling Mimi Jesus showed up after the resurrection, you know, in, in Pilate's uh, living quarters. Hi, Pilate. Remember me? But there's no such uh, silliness in the Gospels. Jesus will be witnessed to by others. Isn't that, is that part of our Lord's humility? That he forms around him a church. Does this right away in the story of John's Gospel. I think Nathaniel and Philip, Peter, Andrew, they're the church. God acts, but he never acts. So he forms a little community around him to be witnesses. Just as when he turns the water into wine, he'll do it through servants. When the great pronouncement about the meaning of this needs to be made, he hands it over, if you will, in his sovereign, his sovereign control to the steward. Let him announce that the true wine has come. The wine which Israel is expecting in the Messianic age, the wine which will even involve God abolishing death. This is a great messianic story. This is a sign given to Israel. Paul says to the Corinthians, Jews demand signs. And here, they got one. Signs are good things, but you're not supposed to demand them they show up by God's sovereign grace. In a, in a little out-of-the-way place called Cana in Galilee, the God of Israel, incarnate now in the mystery of Jesus, gives to his people a sign. The messianic age is about to break in. The kingdom is at hand. 
the wine which will flow in the messianic age is now about beginning to flow. Uh, the end of death itself is at hand. The seventh sign will show that. Sign one, the wine is flowing. Look forward to the abolition of death. Sign seven, death is abolished by this God incarnate, Jesus of Nazareth. Can someone tell me, is that the right time up there? I guess it is. That, that's the right time, isn't it? Oh, good. Oh, good. Yeah. I kind of saw, want, want some conversation about this because you guys are all experts at wine and weddings and stuff like that. The Old Testament, again, a kind of summary here. The Old Testament is surely um, a great expectation witness, isn't it? I think we can say that. Again, I, I love the uh, the modern, popular uh, statement of this. Indeed, Aslan is on the move. God is always coming. He's not a passive God. The Old Testament creates great expect, uh, expectations. And again, Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom about the world. But Christ crucified... As, as John's gospel moves on to the seventh sign, Christ crucified is the final wis, uh, wisdom, the final sign. And this glory begins to be manifested, says uh, John, in this magnificent gospel. It begins, if you will, to be manifested at Cana. Finally, if it's the right way to put it, finally it's manifested in the mystery of the crucifixion at the cross. These things, the Gospel of John famously tells us, these things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. I can tell you, in meditating on this story the last ten days, I felt it again. Yes, this story is true. Jesus is the Christ. No one could have made up this story. It's just, it speaks for itself. Uh, Jesus is the Christ. These things have been written that you may believe. So in this story, surely Mary believed. Not yet Mary, but she believed. She said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. His mother believed in him somehow. Yes, belief. The servants were told, they believed, they saw, they knew what had happened. The disciples believed. Um, I asked myself, um, uh, do I believe this, um, this wonderful story? Yeah. One last time, I, John likes to emphasize uh, place again. Cana in Galilee, they went to a wedding. This sign was manifested at Cana in Galilee. He ends the little story. Place is important to John. Isn't this a beautiful thing to say, Mr. Guardini? Forgive me for quoting him again. Belief, he says, belief is the place where the Son of God is welcomed. Yes, that's beautiful. I think of belief as notional, and belief is notional. It involves the mind. It involves believing truth. The Son of God has come to give us understanding. Uh, is that one John, I believe? But belief is a place where the Son of God is welcomed. 
uh, at Cana in Galilee, in some measure, in some way, he was welcomed. He came to his own, and his own received him not. But whoever received him, to them he gave the power to become children of God. He could manifest his glory at Canaan and Galilee because they said, welcome, Jesus, welcome. His mother was welcomed, and Jesus and his disciples were welcomed. Belief is the place where the Son of God is welcomed. The church is supposed to be, I take it, a place where Jesus is welcomed. We come here to meet with him, and he meets with us. He's, he's a welcome presence here. Increasingly in our culture, in many places, Jesus is not welcomed. In many schools, many cultural institutions, the entertainment industry, kind of not really very much. He's not too welcomed. But the church is the place where the Son of God is welcomed. Welcome, Je- welcome Jesus as he welcomes us. You know, what, a, what a story. I just, um, I hope, in looking at it again, I hope you just very simply love the story. I, I feel really inadequate talking about it. It just speaks for itself. Went to a wedding. Mary was there. He ran out of wine. He hesitated. He met the need. And the servants knew what had happened. And his disciples suddenly realized that glory was in their midst. They believed. They saw a manifestation of his glory. It's, of course, an epiphany. It's an epiphany reading. The manifestation of Jesus. The manifestation of his glory. Uh, I just love this story. I hope you um, love it too. And if you're a student of John, maybe with the help of a Bacham, a man of God, look at, look at all the signs where the Son of God manifests his glory. I want to hear from you, but let's say a word of prayer and then have some conversation. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is uh, beautiful and instructive, and we cons- confess that we are um, just l- learners in, it, in its glory. It manifests your glory. Help us to uh, ponder it um, faithfully all of our lives. Uh, Lord, we would see your glory. Amen.